Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most heinous, the most brutal, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland are discussed and profiled and examined. This season, season four, murder-suicide cases are discussed and profiled. On this episode, the murder-suicide of Summer Loren Brooks is profiled, and the unsolved stabbing murder of 19-year-old Patrick Dolan is discussed. Anger, depression, mental illness. Who the hell knows what was off with 22-year-old Summer Loren Brooks? Look, I'm not one to judge anybody. People had their own reasons why they do what they do. Killers and murderers, they have their own reasoning whether logical or not, and what makes them tick, what makes them zap out, what makes them go off. In Summer's case, I'm quite sure her mother knew something was off or something was wrong with her daughter. I'm sure there were hidden signs. Her mother did try to get her help, but many of us know that when your kid is showing signs of being off and not mentally right, it's not always easy to get them to see like that for themselves. It's, it's not easy to get for them to see it for themselves that something ain't right, let alone for them to get help for themselves. That's what happened in Summer's case. January 26, 2003, Upper Randallstown, in an exclusive, super quiet and lush upper middle class neighborhood in an area called Hidden Valley, where the single family homes are situated far from each other on two or more acres. Some of the neighbors were out in their enclosed patio grilling, enjoying the unusually warm uh, afternoon when a homeowner swore that she heard a woman screaming, help me, help me. It was evening, a little after 7, 7 p.m. and she thought maybe the noise was just like a deer in the woods or maybe it was just kids playing around but when the neighbors clearly heard a woman screaming, help me, help me, 45 minutes later after hearing the first screams, that's when they went in the woods in the back of their homes to investigate. And this time they became armed with flashlights. They searched and looked all throughout the woods, but they saw nothing and they heard nobody and they didn't hear any more screams. Still not giving up, they did call the police and they reported what they heard and the Baltimore County to Police Department did send out two police officers. And when the officers did show up, they were like, why are we even here? I mean, they sat in their cars with the windows rolled down and they waited to see if they too would hear a woman screaming for help. No, they didn't get off their asses and go from door to door to see if everything was okay. No, they didn't go in the woods like their neighbors did to investigate no, they didn't do anything other than sit in their heated cars and waited to see if they would hear the the screams of help me. And after about 20 minutes of waiting and they heard nothing, they pulled off and left. No one, absolutely no one knew that inside a single family home in the 4200 block of Holbrook Road that 52-year-old Lyndall Carroll Brooks 
was fighting for her life, trying to defend herself from a deadly, brutal attack from the hands of her 22-year-old daughter. After beating and killing her mother, Summer went out with a friend, a male friend, to TGIF's on Racistown Road and ate dinner like ain't nothing happened. Her friend later told reporters for the Baltimore Sun that he met up with Summer the, the same evening, well, the evening after she killed her mother. He said she did have a few scrapes and scratches on her face, but he thought nothing of it. He thought nothing of it, not, be, not even when she mentioned that she had been in a fight with her mother and they argued over some household chores. She had some finger-like scratches on her face, but other than a few scratches on her face, she seemed fine throughout dinner, he said. He said she was laughing and talking about her love of writing short stories. After dinner, around 8.15 p.m., they went to the home that she shared with her mother in Randallstown. He had no clue at all, no clue, that while they chilled in the basement, Summer's mother's corpse was inside the house. Her friend told reporters with Baltimore Sun that they went to the basement of the home to chill, talk, and watch a movie. He said when he got up to leave a little later, that's when things went left. He told reporters that I was just about to leave when she put her face in her hands and started crying about how bad her life had turned out. I thought she was just upset because of the fight with her mother and because she was still looking for a job. But he was highly mistaken when she told him that on Sunday, the day before, she and her mother had a terrible argument that had gotten out of hand. She told him that on Sunday, around 4 p.m., they argued about her not doing chores and the argument turned physical. She told him that she slapped her mother in the face, her mother slapped her back, then they ran outside. She said he chased her mother outside where they fought and wrestled in the snow. She said they was fighting and tussling and everything like enemies and enemies on the street. Somehow, when they got back inside the house, Summer manhandled her mother and managed to tie her up to a chair where she left her there the whole night and tortured her for hours. Damn. When she was good, I gave her a snack or a drink. I even let her go to the bathroom, Summer told her friend. Her friend listened to this real-life nightmare in horror, probably fanned for his life a little bit too. He couldn't believe his ears as Summer calmly explained to him that eventually her mother, who knew that her daughter was sick and was dangerous and was going to kill her, she kept telling her all night that she was going to kill her. The mother, she just asked her daughter if she could be killed quickly to just get it over with. And she asked Summer if she could just give her some sleeping pills to get the job done. Summer agreed and gave her mother about 20 sleeping pills to kill her in a more humane way at first. After they both waited for her mother to die and nothing happened and her mother didn't die. And when Summer decided that this was just taking too long for her mother to die, she threw all humanity out the window. Summer got an axe and a mole and hacked her mother to death. Then she got a hammer and finished her off with that to make sure her mother would not be coming back in this lifetime. Summer's friend didn't believe any of this. 
he thought maybe she was just bullshit. Maybe she was just tripping. Maybe she was just exaggerating a little bit. But when she showed him where her mother's body was lying on the floor, the first floor bathroom, his eyes wasn't lying as he saw Curl's body wrapped in a bedsheet with a bloody towel wrapped around her head. He knew he had walked into a nightmare and he knew that without any doubt, Summer's mother was dead. There was no way she would have survived those injuries. I don't know how anyone could torture their mother all night like that. You could see from the bruises on her and the way she had been mangled what she had gone through. I'm still in shock, I think, he told reporters for the Baltimore Sun. After seeing her mother's corpse, her friend demanded that she call 911. And now. Summer listened and called 911, but she told the, the, the dispatchers that she needed an ambulance because her mother had possibly overdosed and she needed help. But her friend snatched the phone out of her hand, got real, and told the dispatcher that this was no drug overdose. This was more like a homicide, and they were talking to the murderer, and they needed to send the police. I don't know why she decided to tell me. I didn't know either one very well, but I've heard since that her mother was a really wonderful person, and that she had been trying to get mental health help for summer for months it bothers me that something like this could happen it makes you wonder why he told reporters when paramedics and the police responded to the home they did find blood throughout the house and linda who had severe and traumatic cuts on her face head and hands was pronounced dead at the scene linda had worked for the state of maryland at the state department of budget budget and management for over 12 years and neighbors said that they saw or heard absolutely no signs of any trouble or anything out of the ordinary in or around the home at any time since they had been there. Summer's friend himself said that he had only known Summer for about a week after he had met her through a mutual friend. So there was no history there at all. Summer, who had no criminal record, was arrested on the spot and charged with the first-degree brutal murder of her mother. Summer had been a former student at the private all-girls Garrison Forest School, and she had been a top softball player with the Garrison Forest Grizzlies during her senior year. After graduating from the private school, she went on to the University of Maryland, where she received a bachelor's degree. Summer's father had died a year before Summer brutally bludgeoned her mother to death. Now arrested and charged with her mother's murder, Summer was held without bail at the Baltimore County Detention Center in Towson. After killing her mother, trust me, Summer came into that jail severely suicidal and depressed no matter what she said. I already know, and she tried to take herself out several times at the jail. And when you attempt suicide, the protocol is to put the inmate on suicide watch where you are monitored literally every five to 15 minutes and after that you're usually transferred to the jail psych unit for continued monitoring summer spent at least two stints on suicide watch and the psych unit for suicide attempts after that she was then transferred to clifton t perkins hospital where she was to receive a full mental health evaluation 
Now, after she spent months of evaluation at Clifton T. Perkins, and the the doctors there, they found her sane and competent enough to stand trial for killing her mother. They were like, look, brutal, yes. Insane, no. Did you know what you were doing? Yes. So, on June 10th, 2003, they shipped Tyas right back to the detention center to await trial. After she was evaluated there, apparently at the jail, at least three psychiatrists reported that Summer was no longer a suicide risk, and they took her off suicide watch. Instead, she was placed in protective custody alone and in a private cell. Alone with nothing but her thoughts, I literally cannot even imagine what was on Summer's mind. What were her thoughts as every single minute she had to live with the fact that she, that she and only she was responsible for hacking her mother to death because she basically couldn't control her anger. She couldn't control her temper. Perhaps she simply could not live with the images in her head of axing her mother to death. 19 days after she was placed on protective custody in her own private cell, on July 19, 2003, two months before her trial was supposed to start on September 24th, on July 19, 2003, a little after midnight between 12.05 a.m. and 12.45 a.m., Summer put a trash bag over her head, tied a bed sheet around her neck, and the other end of the sheet to one of the end of the bars in her cell and took her own life. No CO was on duty. Nobody was guarding PC at the time because reportedly the officer had been called away ordered to leave her post to help process two new inmates who had just came into the jail. Now, this murder-suicide was notorious in Maryland because... First off, from the brutal nature of it, the brutality of it. Wow, I mean, she basically axed her mother to death. And also because, you know, she was tortured. She tied her to a chair, her mother to a chair, and she was tortured. And this was a fight over chores. Summer was obviously not there mentally. Um, this was also notorious in the state of Maryland because um, her mother's calls for help went unanswered. She screamed for help. You know, um, in that part of Randallstown, at the time, it, I guess, was in a wooden area and everything, and the houses are so far apart. But it's a shame to be screaming for help and think that someone is going to respond or someone can hear you, and they come there and... Your, your cries for help basically go unanswered. I would be traumatized. If I was one of the neighbors, I would be traumatized. Like, wow, you know, maybe I could have intervened. Maybe I could have done more, you know. The officers, like, wow. I, I, I have no words for that. I mean, her friend, um, also the, the male friend that Summer was with who saw uh, her mother's body, I would have PTSD from that. From seeing someone heck to death um wow for for her to confess that to basically a stranger somebody that she didn't know um to me that screams mental illness 
that screams mental illness on on Summer's part. I mean, I I can't even imagine what she was going through. Um, it it it, it it's like it proves that you know mental illness is a bitch, especially when it's undetected and untreated, and especially when it's um it's not understood, and when the person who is suffering from mental illness does not believe that they are mentally ill. I mean, I feel that Summer was going, it just seems like she was going to commit suicide whether uh, she was convicted or not. You know, even if she would have gotten off or even if she would have had to spend time in the mental institution, if she would not have been found guilty of first degree murder or if she would have been found incompetent to stand trial, I just feel like that Summer would have committed suicide anyway. I believe she was just mentally ill. I mean, um, whether she was on suicide watch or not, I don't believe that, you know, you shouldn't hold the jail responsible. They shouldn't be held liable. They cannot seriously watch an inmate 24-7. Um, as a person who used to work in crime scene cleanups and, you know, I've been around suicides and deaths and stuff like that, if a person wants to kill themselves, trust and believe, they're going to they're gonna do it. They're going to do it. They're going to find a means and a way to do it. You can convince, you know, people around you that you're fine just so they can get you off of suicide watch, especially in a detention center. So I don't feel like um, the jail should be held responsible for what happened to Summer. If you want to hold somebody responsible, hold the two officers responsible who actually just drove out and just sat in their cars and didn't do anything. Would it have hurt? Would it have hurt anything to you know, possibly go drive from the door to door to find out if everything was okay, talk to the neighbors there, talk to the residents there. Would that have killed anybody to do that? You could have saved a life. You know, um, it's quite possibly that she could have been alive if that was done. Um, but unfortunately, it wasn't. Um, this was an unfortunate situation and an unfortunate homicide that I, I cannot even imagine what her mother went through. I, I cannot even imagine. It's, it's just it's just a brutal case and just tragic and sad all around. This episode's Unsolved Homicide is the stabbing death of 19-year-old Patrick Dolan. Just like in B-Moy, an innocent person can be struck by flying bullets with no name on them, whether that be women, kids, or anybody elderly. You can also be involved with minding your own business and become a random victim of crime just by walking down the street, just by minding your business, just being an innocent person, just doing something as simple as just walking down the street. 19-year-old Patrick Dolan came from a big, proud Irish Catholic family. Although he grew up in Hampton in Baltimore City, his family moved to Dover, Pennsylvania to get away from the crime and grit of Baltimore City. Patrick still liked to visit his peeps that were still in Baltimore, and occasionally he would still come back to the city to visit his friends and family who still lived here. And on the morning of November the 23rd, 2010, he was on one of those trips back to Beemore to visit his 78-year-old grandmother, who was a huge Baltimore Ravens fan. 
as he headed to his destination in Hampton from Hazelwood Avenue in Rosedale, he accidentally got off on the wrong bus stop and ended up in the 3500 block of Juneway Street and Brendan Avenue in the Bel Air Edison neighborhood of Baltimore City. Patrick did what any of us would have done. He felt that since his destination was within walking distance, that he could just walk the rest of the way. But it can't be that easy in Beemore. Y'all know what I'm talking about. People, residents that live here in Baltimore City, y'all know what I'm talking about. And as Patrick walked to his destination, minding his own business, another young man approached him and asked him if he had change for a $10 bill. Now, right off the bat, to me, that's a red flag. Any other city, you can probably get away with that. But in Baltimore, it's a shame. You got to automatically think that around, this happened around 10, 10.30 a.m. in the morning, that it's most likely a street corner. You know, I mean, most likely it's a, it's a st corner store on every street corner. I'm like, you can't get change over there? Why? I mean, I, I just, I don't know. That's just how I think in Baltimore. You got to be on that type of mentality when you're living in Baltimore. I mean, you, you may not have to think like that in any other city, but in Baltimore, you just have to, when somebody mentions money, a stranger coming up to you, I don't care if it's spare change, anything, anything like that, you got to automatically just be on point. But anyway, when the stranger came up to him, asked him for change for a $10 bill. Um, anyway, Patrick being the nice, free-spirited person that he was, he pulled out his wallet and about $15. The man tried to grab his wallet and run. Patrick naturally resisted and fought back. Another dude came over, got involved, and stabbed Patrick once in the chest and once in the back. The killer and his accomplice then took off running, but not before Patrick managed to grab the baseball cap from the head of the dude who stabbed him. Witnesses called 911, and Patrick was rushed to John Hopkins Hospital, where later he was pronounced dead. Described by his friends and his family as very friendly, very charismatic, genuine, and devoted, Patrick, who grew up in Baltimore, had went to Catholic elementary school and halfway through Archbishop Curley High School. Patrick had an extraordinary zest for life. He was an, he was an accomplished baseball player and he had the trophies and medals to prove it. And he was a huge and avid Baltimore Ravens fan. One of his favorite players was the starting quarterback, was the then starting quarterback, Ladarius Webb. And Patrick was buried wearing the quarterback's jersey. Ladarius was so touched by this gesture that when he heard about Patrick being buried in his jersey, he gave Patrick's family a football that was autographed by many of the players from the Baltimore Ravens. It got to me. I didn't know whether to be scared, happy that he was being buried in my, buried in my jersey. It was something new for me. For the family, I hope this can lift them up in any way possible to help them move on, Ladarius commented to the Baltimore Sun. Patrick had worked as a dishwasher at Outback Steakhouse in York, Pennsylvania, and had recently bought the jersey online. 
he only wore the jersey one time before he was killed. Patrick's murder completely crushed his tight-knit family. He had two older brothers and a sister who were all devastated, not including his parents. His parents wrote letters to everybody in Baltimore. They wrote letters to the paramedics who treated her son, thanking them for how they had treated him. They wrote letters to uh, the state's attorney. They wrote letters to the mayor of Baltimore to get things moving and get his case investigated. They even wrote to the governor, begging for answers, begging for help, begging for justice. They hung up posters and flyers, begging the public or anybody for any information on who could just stab a stranger in the street, 10 in the morning, for over a few dollars. Like, but nothing. No clues, no leads, no evidence, nothing, man. I know the feeling all too well, man, but you cannot give up hope. Let's get justice and answers for this family. This was in November of 2010, and Patrick's murder was the 200th murder in the city that year. I'm going to say that again. It was the 200th murder in the city that year. As of today, 12 long years later, Patrick's murder is still unsolved. But I know somebody knows something. Somebody heard something. Somebody saw something. Clear your conscience and call Baltimore City Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also send a text message to 443-902-4824. Or you can email them at homicide tips. That's tips with an S at baltimorepolice.org Once again, those numbers are 410-396-2100 You can also send a text message to 443-902-4824 You can also email them at homicidetips with an S at baltimorepolice.org You can remain anonymous people thank you for tuning in this week please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine tingling hair raising bizarre grisly newsworthy episodes also please be sure to check out all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast which are Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Marilyn's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and the upcoming Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders, 2009-2020. through 2020. All of these books, as well as all of my the other local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, the True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story are also on Amazon.com and available in paperback as well as an ebook for your Kindle or other digital reader. Be sure to tune in next week where another high-profile, noteworthy homicide will be profiled, examined, and discussed 
on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a real life production.